Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Suits and Boots is a grassroots organization that brings together business people from across Canada to support and defend Canada's resource industry workers and their families. I spoke with Rick Peterson, the founder and director of Suits and Boots. Have a listen. The Parliamentary Budget Officer released information that the cost of illegal, or if you prefer, irregular border migration is $340 million for the migrants who crossed the border in 1718. Add another $400 million for Quebec and Ontario and you start to see the cost. Scott Newark, former Alberta prosecutor and senior policy advisor for Federal Minister for Public Safety, spoke to me about that. USMCA, or the new NAFTA, if you prefer, was signed by the United States, Canada, and Mexico at the G20. How will the trade deal affect small business in Canada? And what's this about huge numbers of small business owners planning to retire in the next 10 years? Dan Kelly is the president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. He spoke with me. Rioting and national rallies continued for another day in France as people across the nation protest rising fuel costs brought by policies of French President Emmanuel Macron and his other austerity measures. Jerome Godfroy is a reporter in Paris. He joins us. All right, let's coming up today, Suits and Boots, again, the grassroots organization that brings together business people from across Canada to support and defend Canada's resource industry workers and their families. And Suits and Boots sent a letter to the Prime Minister inviting Justin Trudeau to vis- visit Drayton Valley in Alberta. Rick Peterson is the founder and director of Suits and Boots. He joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Rick, thank you very much for joining us. I hope you're not having hamburgers today. <laughs> thank you, Roy. Well, I'm going to be flying Air Canada later on, and I'll uh, inspect that menu closely, okay? Yeah, go vegetarian, please. Okay. It'll help the planet. <laughs> Tell us about uh, about uh, Suits and Boots. You started earlier this year, and the response that you're getting from Canadians is really remarkable. Let's talk about, talk to us about that. Thanks, Roy. I'm I'm uh, I'm a veteran. I'm a 30-year veteran of the investment industry, and um, a lot of us have watched with dismay. Like I'm pretty much sure everybody in your program has the uh, difficulties of uh, of getting pipelines built and other resource sectors. Our perspective, Roy, is a little different than many people's. Is that um, colleagues of mine who are fund managers, uh, investment bankers, investment advisors are kind of at the sharp edge of the stick when it comes to finding capital that our resource sector needs to grow. And increasingly, we've seen what we call the Canadian discount, where investors in Canada and abroad have uh, lots of choices to put their capital and their money. And because of the increasing risk of a political problem, uh, environmental problem, and regulatory problem, there's lots of places to put money in the world that are easier for them to make a decision in Canada. So Suits and Boots started, the catalyst for us, Roy, was Kinder Morgan's decision in April to say, listen, we're out of here May 31st unless something gets done. So the Kinder Morgan decision, it was extremely smart negotiating by Kinder Morgan. Kinder Morgan boxed the government in into a situation where basically they said you got 60 days uh, or if not, we're gone. So you and I and every Canadian taxpayer, Roy, really didn't have a choice other than to pony up 
and uh, buy Kinder Morgan at a very uh, good price. The last thing you want to do is to buy something when you're forced to at a deadline. And a few of us said, you know what, the situation that we got to is uh, intenable. we got to do something to change it. And quite, quite frankly, we, uh, six or eight of us, we launched this nonprofit. weren't quite sure exactly the route we wanted to take, but we knew we needed to stand up and make, uh, make some noise. And um, that's what we've done. So we started in May. And what's happened over the last six months Roy, is we've actually morphed and found our footing as the voice. In other words, we're just providing a way for people across Canada mm-hmm. to have a direct impact. And um, it's really been heartwarming and touching and also worrying to watch how quickly uh, we fill the gap. Well, there is a national, there's national empathy, there's national interest, there's national buy-in uh, as far as this energy crisis is concerned, what it's doing to, to, to real human beings what it's doing to families. And, uh, you know, we talk about Alberta and Saskatchewan, but it extends beyond Alberta and Saskatchewan. It involves everybody in this country. I just want to read you something, just a little piece of an email that I received earlier today. I'm not going to read it all because I don't want to identify the person because I didn't get permission for that. But here's uh, what he wrote. Hi, Roy. My brother's drill rig will be shut down in a week or so. They've been told their contract has been canceled and uh, their drilling program will be reviewed again in 2020. That's 2019 will be a no-go. He will be bankrupt by February, as the last couple of years have been very tough for him and his wife. One story, one story, and there are so many. And these are the people that need assistance. These are the people that need the buy-in from you, from Suits and Boots, and people across the country, and really some smart moves by the government of Canada, which they seem not to be able to or interested in making. Well, the the, the biggest thing that we can do at Suits and Boots, we're a bunch of pragmatic people, and we say um, there are lots of real good groups out there that are doing advocacy work. So there's right. Canada Action, there's Rally for Resources, there's people who are doing a really good job of drawing attention. That's yep. good. That's good. But you know what? What, are we, what can we do? What can we do to move the needle right now? What can we do to move the needle for the energy industry right. and for people like those who wrote the email? So, I, you know, I, I love marching in the streets in Calgary. It's great to have placards up, and it's great to protest. But come on, what are we going to do? Well, what we can do right now, and we started this in September 10th. We were the first group, I'm, I'm pretty sure, to put an organized push on to kill Bill C-69. This is an amazing opportunity, Roy where grassroots people across Canada can kill legislation that is going to dramatically affect everybody's livelihood in Canada. That doesn't happen very often. No, you just heard Brad Wall say that C-69 is going to ultimately be responsible for no more pipelines. That'll be it. It'll be over. Well, here's how easy this can be done, Roy. And this is why we've gone from, you know, five followers to 3,000 in the last couple of months, is Bill C-69 needs 53 votes in the Senate. If you go to our website, you can find the details. Mm-hmm. Well, there are really only 22 senators that we need to convince in the Senate to vote against Bill C-69. So our campaign has been a two-step campaign. We started in on September 10th, and we said to our uh, network of people, we said, send them an email to these senators and phone them and tell them why you don't want this to happen. So what happened, Roy, is we actually set fire to a, it's a grass fire that's gone across Canada because people keep on saying to us, Whoa, had no idea I could do this. Thank you. Thank you for giving me a voice. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to point out something, Roy, is that, is that if you're a member of Parliament, you're used to getting feedback, you're used to getting calls and emails, but these senators are all political appointees. The most recent ones that the Prime Minister has appointed are 
theoretically independent, but none of them have really run for office. So here's what's happened, Roy, is our numbers have grown like wildfire. And having been in Ottawa, and I'm going again tomorrow for a for something we can talk about in a minute here. But what's happened is that these senators who are academics or journalists or political appointees are all of a sudden, their phones are lighting up. The assistants at the front desk are saying, I got 800 phone calls coming today. I got 350 emails. Right. Uh, there's something happening. And they are just going, whoa, what is this? No, I understand. I, I get it, Rick. It's important. I get to these people who have, who can make the difference, who are really the balance of power on whether or not C-69 sees the light of day or is or is, is passed by the Senate. I'm speaking with Rick Peterson. He is the director and founder of Suits and Boots, and that's suitsandboots.ca on the Internet. Now, we just have a few minutes, Rick, so let's cut to some of the issues that, that you're involved in, and that's let's talk about this Drayton Valley, Alberta letter that has been sent, I believe, by 87 business people to the Prime Minister of Canada saying, come and visit us. Tell us about the letter. Yeah, thanks, uh, Roy. Very, very quickly, I was invited out on uh, Monday of last week. Um, a number of uh, Suits and Boots supporters are in Grayton Valley. There was about 125 uh, people concerned, obviously, about what's going on in the sector. They held a town hall meeting um, looking at what they could do. Um, I think they've started their own little advocacy group as well. Um, a number of the group were putting forward some ideas that I didn't really think would be smart and, and you know, stopping to pay their taxes and and blocking highways and stuff, and, you know, they, they may or may not do that, but I suggested to them, why don't we invite the uh, Prime Minister out to hear their stories on the ground. He's been to Calgary, and he's met all the suits, and we thought it'd be a great idea to have him come out and meet some of the boots and listen to... I think it's a great idea. Are, and, yeah. and he did. See, if yeah. he does, see if he does it. See if he does it. I got a call from the PMO last week um, indicating they received it. They're they're interested and curious, so we'll we'll see where it goes. I uh, just looked at three uh, examples of emails, messages that you've received just in the last 10 days. Love what you guys are doing. Our industry has needed this for years. Thanks for giving a voice to good, moral, clean energy. Uh, another one, I now have a voice in one of the most important topics of our time. I'm a retired veterinarian and want to do something for ordinary people that seem to be the ones that are hurting. And then I have been unemployed from the oil industry since May 2015 as a professional engineer with totally inadequate savings for retirement. Three years of unemployment, almost four, it looks like. I don't know how people hold out forever, and it's so unnecessary. So, Rick, what's the ultimate objective for Suits and Boots? What do you, what ultimately, what's the goal? Power to the people. Change Bill C-69 through a grassroots organization. I'm interested in doing things, Roy, not in making noise. And if Bill C-69 gets watered down, stopped, or turned back, um, we'll be happy to have played our role in it. And we're always looking, you know, inviting the Prime Minister to come out, we think is conducive to uh, trying to move the needle. We're interested, Roy, in moving the needle. We don't want to make noise. We'll make noise if we have to. But we want to get stuff done. And that fits into the spirit of a lot of boots across Canada and every mm-hmm. resource sector. So we're, our goal is to uh, get some stuff done, and, and we're well on the way right now. That's a, that's a great combination, the suits and the boots. I don't know how you beat that combo. You have to listen. Now, let me ask you this as well in the minute or two we have left. Mm-hmm. We are going to Ottawa later today, or this uh, week, this coming week. You're going to be in Ottawa. I'm off to uh, I'm off to Ottawa and Toronto. Yeah. Okay. So, do you have meetings with those senators? Any one of them? Every time I go to Ottawa, I, I try to meet some senators, and uh, I've met with probably fifteen or twenty of Great. them. And Senator Grant Mitchell, he was leading the uh, charge on the Liberal side, is uh, is very open. Uh, my message, Roy, and this is another topic, but the mining groups in Canada are split on Bill C-69. 
head of the Mining Association of Canada, a gentleman by the name of Pierre Graton, mm-hmm. is in favor of C69, but a lot of the boots, a lot of the people that run the mining sectors across Canada, or the mining companies are telling me, no, they do not agree with Bill C69. So um, my job in Ottawa this week is to talk to as many senators as I can and let them know that the mining community is divided and a lot of the people who are the boots on the ground uh, don't agree with the person who's running their, uh, their advocacy. Okay. All the very best to you, and uh, Rick will check back in. Thanks, Roy, for the time. Thank you. It. Rick Peterson, suitsandboots.ca is the webpage. Now, I want you to listen to, um, to Brad Wall when he spoke with us yesterday. And one of the questions I had for Mr. Wall has to do with the upcoming First Minister's Conference and whether or not there is actually a set-aside period of time for the provincial premiers to be talking about the energy industry. Listen to what was said. In the upcoming First Minister's Conference, is it true, do you know, whether there's any specific time set aside to discuss the energy issue? I have seen the agenda. Uh, There is no time. There is zero time for the resource sector for this particular energy as of now, as of a few days ago. I mean, maybe the chair of that meeting, who happens to be the prime minister of the country, has come to his senses and ensured that there's going to be a discussion. Can you imagine if there was an existential crisis for major, a near to existential crisis for major employers, for a, a huge part of the sector, hundreds of thousands of jobs lost more at risk in the province of Quebec and Ontario, where we just pick one of them, and it not being a part of, uh, of the uh, First Minister's meeting on the economy. By the way, I think it's the first one on the economy. There's been several on the environment. Uh, I was at a couple of those. This will be the first one on the economy. Moreover, I couldn't see a reference to it in the federal government's mid-year economic statement. Not a word. And so then people wonder, well, why are Western Canadians, specifically the energy sector, but maybe more broadly Western Canadians, why are they, why are they feeling alienated? Uh, well, there's a couple of good reasons right there. Brad Wall with us yesterday, the former premier of Saskatchewan. So this resource sector, at least the, the uh, first minister's conference on, on energy and resources, nothing, nothing until a couple of days ago. I don't know if they've added it now. But to Mr. Wall's knowledge, until a couple of days ago, there was nothing specifically set aside to speak about what we've been talking about, and that's the crisis situation that exists within the resource center in this country, the energy. And remember, international investors with more than a trillion dollars in assets they manage have sent letters to Mr. Trudeau urging him to be more responsible and to take this very seriously. You're not going to get international investment money if you're for something that's tumbling into an abyss. It's a terrible situation and so unnecessary. The unrest continues in France nationwide over the policies of Monsieur Macron, the president of France, and his policies have, among other things, driven up the price of fuel so dramatically that uh, it's it's really difficult for some people in France to be able to go about and do their business. And so they, um, the yellow vests is what they call themselves because French motorists carry yellow vests in their vehicles and they're wearing them. They've been protesting nationwide. There have been rallies, protests, and in Paris, repeatedly over the last several weekends, there's been violence. 
with police using uh, pepper spray and water cannon to drive off protesters. There have been fires on the streets. And uh, Monsieur Macron has called for a national security meeting because of this. And Monsieur Godfroy telling us yesterday if he doesn't do something significant very quickly, then there's going to be a real political price for the French president. Meanwhile, Canada is handing over stewardship or chairpersonship of the G7 to France uh, this year. And there's, if you go to the prime minister's website, there's this photograph of the Les Deux Amis, not the Three Amigos, but Les Deux Amis, Monsieur Trudeau and Monsieur Macron, sitting, uh, looking professorial and uh, discussing all the important aspects of the world, meanwhile at home. What was the name of that movie, Paris is Burning? Anyway, that's an overstatement, but there is a, there's a real issue and a real concern. It's been going on for weeks now, nationwide protests. And we'll speak with Mr. Gottfroy a little later on in the show today. The uh, parliamentary budget officer released information that the cost of illegal or, if you prefer, irregular border migration is some $340 million for the migrants who crossed the border in 2017-2018 or $14,321 per migrant, although it's suggested that number could be considerably higher, and that $340 million cost is federal, does not include uh, provincial costs, and Ontario's estimate is $200 million more, and the parliamentary budget officer estimates roughly the same for Quebec. Meanwhile, the border security minister, Bill Blair, claimed in Parliament that the system is is working. But is it? And uh, isn't $340 million federal and an additional $400 million cost for Ontario and Quebec over the top? That's one of the things we're going to talk to Scott Newark about now, the former Alberta prosecutor, senior policy advisor for Federal Minister of Public Safety, security advisor to the federal and Ontario governments, and uh, that's post-9-11, and a professor at Simon Fraser University. So, Scott, thank you for the time, as always. So now irregular has replaced illegal, for the liberal government anyway, illegal border crossers, and the numbers are significantly high with the cost astronomical, considering these are people who, with intent, are avoiding our established border stations and illegally entering Canada. Please speak to that. Yeah, it's uh, something we've been talking about really for uh, two years now. And uh, before I get into the details of it, I would, however, just like to point out that uh, uh, your previous criticism of professorial looks is something that is quite alarming. Uh, although you never know, perhaps uh, uh, Monsieur Trudeau can uh, tell uh, his friend Monsieur Macron if they've got a crisis, they can just send all the migrants <laughs> over to Canada with what we've uh, just yeah. discovered. No, no, the, uh, by the way, I'm only, I'm only chucking, chuckling because... You, you're the you're the least in the least likely to have a professorial look, that's, whatever that's that a, means. That's a fair comment. Yes. Okay. Yes, it is. I'll I'll, I'll accept that. Um, more more prosecutorial, not professorial. As opposed to professor. Yes. Yes. The um, the the parliamentary budget officer report uh, came out uh, just uh, last week, and it was uh, it's got a lot of detail in it, and some great uh, reporting and analysis by uh, John Ives of the National Post on Friday revealed the uh, details you were talking about in the costing. And by the way, that $340 million estimate, as you say, 
Uh, it does not include the provincial costs. It uh, doesn't include necessarily all of the federal costs. And it was only for the one fiscal year, 2017-2018. The estimates for the three years when you go forward, uh, uh, the last fiscal year and then the, the following uh, fiscal year in 2019-20, takes that total over $1 billion. It's working well, though. So, yeah, well, unfortunately, I, I must admit, I was very disappointed that Bill Blair said that because it obviously uh, is not working very well. And one of the other things that was uh, pointed out in the report, and this, I just want to stress this because it's why this independent analysis, oversight, and reporting is so important because we discovered in this report, and believe me, it's buried in footnote 11 of the, uh, the entire report, I guess the, uh, the, uh, the budget officer's office was going through trying to get accurate numbers on, you know, exactly who these illegal or irregular migrants were. And so was asking questions of the different agencies and specifically asked CBSA as to whether or not there were any people that were coming to the ports of entry linked to these illegal border crossers um, that were gaining into the country because of that. And, in fact, there were, uh, uh, Brian Lilly has just reported today that there's actually 3,800 people. Now, this is complicated, but it is part of the Safe Third Country Agreement. And, you know, it's funny because uh, people have been, you know, going back and forth about this, oh, are they illegal or are they irregular and everything else? And the truth of it is they're both, because entering the country uh, uh, between ports of entry, particularly purposely doing so, is in fact illegal. It's a violation of the Customs Act and the Immigration Refugee Protection Act. But under our Immigration and Refugee Protection Act and a U.N. convention to which we are a signatory, once those people are in the country, even though having entered illegally, they are lawfully entitled to be here and to engage the refugee determination process as they seek asylum through our, you know, long and laborious process. So that makes them legally in the country, which is why the liberals are using this word irregular as opposed to illegal. What the parliamentary budget officer's report just revealed, however, because of yet another loophole in the safe third country agreement, if they have entered the country illegally but are now here regularly, which they are entitled to uh, uh, to make their claim at, um, the... Uh, uh, Safe Third Country Agreement, I did a little digging around, it's in uh, Article 4, Paragraph 2, and it says that the country receiving them, there's an exception uh, to, it. normally they should be turned back, unless in the territory of the receiving party, that would be Canada, at least one family member who has had a refugee status claim granted or has been granted lawful status, okay, uh, is in the receiving party's territory. Well, these people who are illegally entering Canada but are now legally here seeking status, they qualify for that lawful status. So they, in effect, get to sponsor people, their other family members showing up at the border. And listen to the definition of family member. Family member means the spouse, sons, daughters, parents, legal guardians, siblings, grandparents, grandchildren, aunts, uncles, nieces, and nephews. So not only are these people entering the country illegally to, quite frankly, in my opinion, game our system, because the, the uh, uh, illegal migration business has detected this uh, loophole, uh, now it turns out that they're they actually exploiting, and I think it was Michelle Rempel who put it, 
quite well as a loophole within a loophole, they're now actually able to serve as an anchor or sponsor for other people who allege themselves to be family members. And I must admit, just as a matter of pragmatics, how the hell are you supposed to determine whether or not they actually are family members? So well, exactly. How do they? Situation made worse. How, how do they? Uh, if 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 Minister Blair were asked that question, since he seems to understand and states that the system is working, then Mr. Blair should have an answer to that question, should he the question not? Question has to be asked of them, though. In fairness, uh, absolutely. Yeah. So, 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 in 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 layman's terminology, the person enters Canada illegally, and then has is investigated, uh, and then f- gets temporary legal status, and then that person can now apply to bring family members or no. the, the, the various categories that you just mentioned into no. Canada. So they come in illegally, and then they can bring in or apply to bring in all those people or, or number of people that you, yeah, not, that you mentioned. Not quite, but it's... Close. Come in illegally, yeah. okay, and then they are determined to at least be able to make a claim. In other okay. words... They aren't criminally no, inadmissible. They haven't been deported before. They I understand. Turned down, and so they go into the process, which is now has been reported as taking at a minimum two years and possibly up to as much as six years right. to get the hearing. And by the way, there is appeal after appeal after appeal that they're entitled to make. I've written about this previously. We need to fix that system as well. And it isn't that they can you know, um, uh, proactively sponsor people. But if somebody then shows up at a regular port of entry, okay, in other words, seemingly uh, uh, legally, yeah. they would normally, under the from the United States, they would normally be denied entry under the safe third country agreement. But one of the exceptions is they can say, well, no, I've got a cousin, you know, who's uh, living in uh, Toronto, and so I'm allowed to come in. And that's what the uh, uh, the uh, uh, parliamentary budget officer has discovered. And Brian Lilly has reported that so far there's, as I say, somewhere like around 3,800 people. Mm. So it's a, uh, it is quite definitely a loophole within a loophole. Then we are going to be signing the UN Compact on oh. Migration in a matter of days, which is another story entirely. I plan on doing something on that next weekend in, in some more detail. I'm sorry? Very dangerous, in my opinion. Very concerning. And there are numerous countries that have decided they're not going to participate. The United States, Australia, Switzerland, Austria, Poland, Hungary, and I think uh, Bulgaria most recently, and probably some others along the way. Somebody sent me an email said it's in the teens now in the numbers of countries that have decided this UN compact on orderly migration. That's an approximation of what it's called. Uh, not going to yeah, global migration are not going to be playing ball and not participating. Some 230 million people will be on the move, and uh, they keep saying it's voluntary. But there are expectations of the nations that sign on to this, and uh, I think it, right now it's probably in the neighborhood of 180 nations that are going to be signing or ratifying it. It was signed already, but ratifying it. Okay, now let's get let's get to this issue of whether or not anybody in this country has ever been released from prison temporarily or permanently uh, through the Section 745 process. And for that to take effect, you would have had to have been convicted of first-degree murder. Yeah, so has it ever happened? Uh, yes. In fact, when I did the analysis of it for a recent article, I was back looking at some stuff that I had done. And uh, this was particularly applicable to uh, 
the Canadian Police Association, where I was executive uh, officer, because one of the definitions of first-degree murder is the murder of a police officer. And so what happened was, this was actually the section that was included when Canada abolished the death penalty. Mm-hmm. They added in, you know, the life, no, 20, no parole for 25, but they added in this back door, which nobody really knew about. And it was only, you know, 15 years or so afterwards, which was in the early 90s, when I was at the police association, that it started to kick in on, as they say, predominantly, uh, there was a large number of uh, cases involving murder of police officers. And so... Uh, we were very, very much the champions of getting rid of this section. We had some success with the Liberal government under Alan Rock as the minister in getting it reduced, but um, it did not ultimately get uh, uh, repealed until the, um, I believe it was in 2012 when the Conservative government uh, uh, repealed it. But along the way, because it was known as, you may recall, Roy, it was known as the, quote, faint hope clause. Exactly. So I did a little bit of digging around, and I think this would have been, you know, probably... Uh, early 2000s, because I still kept track of it when I was at the Ontario government, and it actually had an 83% success rate for offenders that applied. So say that again. Say that again so people hear it. 83% success rate for offenders that had applied. Okay, now, in fairness, since there has been some of these procedural changes or when the section has now been repealed and you've got only the retroactive applications, I don't know what that, uh, that new number was. But when it was the functioning section, it had that 83%. Now, Scott, a lot of those individuals, or a number of them anyway, would not be safe in the general population of a Canadian prison because of the crimes they committed. And yet, 83%, say it again, 83% of those who applied were paroled. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny you mentioned that. I remember one of the first cases I attended was in Saskatoon. It was the murder of a police officer by these two dirtbags. And uh, the legislation at the time, it was a jury, and the jury was allowed to either approve or deny the request for early uh, release. The jury in this case uh, denied the release. And um, they were, the jury was also allowed to set, you know, when the individual could apply next because uh, the individual would have, say, uh, 10 years still left on his sentence. And so in this one case, uh, the jury uh, turned down the guy's request and then said he could uh, reapply uh, n- uh, nine years, 11 months, and 29 days after their <laughs> decision. <laughs> a little bit of a sense of humor there. Um, I love the people of Saskatchewan. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, in the 30 seconds we have left, there's no realistic chance that McClintock will ever, ever get out of prison, or is there? Uh, I don't know her case file well enough to say that, but, you know, as you know, our system is focused on yes, rehabilitation, yes. not punishment. 50-50. And, um, you know, there is certainly an argument that uh, could be made that the uh, public safety interest is better served by having her under supervision than under lockdown. And somebody will make that argument. Somebody will. Somebody will do it. probably be a lawyer you and I will pay for. Yep. No, it's such a great system. But thanks for, uh, again, thanks for informing this country that it's six years, not 16 for her. So we have a we have some time, but it has to be, it can't be ignored. Scott, thank you for the time always. No problems all, Roy. And as I say, it's important that the public knows the truth. Yes, sir. Scott Newark. The uh, USMCA, or the new NAFTA, depending on who you're going to listen to, was signed by the United States, Canada, and Mexico at the G20. Now Mr. Trump's talking about maybe torpedoing it. 
Uh, how will the trade deal affect Canada's small and medium-sized business community, the number one employers of the country? That's one question I have. For Dan Kelly, the president and CEO of the CFIB, who joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. But there's something else. Uh, Dan, you sent me uh, some... Thanks for coming on the show, by the way. Happy to be here. Happy yeah, you... I don't have trouble finding you. Uh, and, and thank you. I, pre- I appreciate that. <laughs> no, I mean, you're a good guy. You come on and represent the business community uh, so professionally and so very well. Well, and, right. For a guy like you, I'm happy to do it anytime. You know, and, and entrepreneurs are the backbone of our Canadian economy. We also did a study on the giant numbers of small business owners who plan to retire in the next 10 years. I want to talk to you about that. But as far as the uh, U.S. MCA is concerned, what's the overall review of that from the CFIB? Well, look, it certainly is a positive development that the government has landed a deal with the United States. And, and you know, as as you know, I'm not shy to uh, to criticize the Trudeau government for lots of stuff, and there's plenty of, plenty of that these days. Uh, but, uh, look, I, I think they've done a reasonably good job on the trade agenda in negotiating deals. The major challenge, of course, in negotiating a deal with the United States is the United States. Uh, the Trump administration has not been easy to deal with. And, uh, and I think they've done as about, about as good a job as anyone could have done in terms of managing that, that uh, very tender relationship. So it is good news that we have the USMCA or, or the Canadian-U.S.-Mexico agreement, whatever, whatever we're calling it. Is. it. Whatever it is today, <laughs> but uh, but it, that that is certainly good news. The concern, of course, is that the the tariffs are, are on on aluminum and steel, and then the retaliatory tariffs that Canada has taken, those have not ended, and that is still a very big deal for a lot of small and medium sized companies. I, I continue to get uh, reach outs from them, uh, asking for some help. The government has been responding and adjusting some tariff levels from time to time where where the shoe has been pinching. But it is still a, a, a big question mark, and, and we need to do that. The other thing that that's happened, that's happened though, since the signing of the agreement, is we thought that small business confidence in the economy, in the economy, Canadian economy, would have improved. But that actually hasn't happened, uh, and I think that just says that there's a whole bunch more uncertainty still out there. We thought that uh, that our members would would see a, a nice bump in their optimism levels, their hiring intentions, as a result of getting the agreement in the can. Uh, but to date, that has not happened. Um, your business barometer doesn't uh, reflect a great deal of confidence, does it? No, it sure doesn't. And and look, I mean, the, having the free trade agreement settled is one thing. There are, of course, outstanding issues in the Canada-U.S. relationship, which we just discussed. But the, the other thing that I guess is so worrisome is that while there was some good news in, in the economic uh, update that the, the finance minister provided just a couple of days ago, or a couple of weeks ago, there was, some, there was a good development there with respect to the taxation, uh, allow, uh, you know, moving Canada closer to the U.S. and allowing firms to deduct some of their major capital expenses. That's good news. But the rest of the news is decidedly bad. The, the federal government is, of course, going ahead in four provinces, imposing a giant new federal carbon tax that uh, is going to be largely paid by small and medium-sized businesses. Of course, as we've talked before, Roy, the, the Canada Pension Plan premiums are going up next year and for the next six, five to seven years, depending on the salary level of the employee. Uh, the federal government has also announced major changes to labor legislation uh, for the federal labor code, which uh, which is basically repeating a lot of the disasters that the previous Ontario government imposed provincially here. And then on top of all of that, we have the, the impact of the small business tax changes 
that will the other the, the next big chapter of that actually goes into effect in 2019. So it's created a whole a whole big matzo ball of uncertainty for a lot of small and medium sized firms uh, that they're struggling with, and I think that that's affecting optimism levels. Well, there's something else that I uh, that I'm really taking note of here, and that is that uh, you did a study, and you have some really significant numbers of small business owners who plan to retire in the t- in the next ten years. And I'm saying to myself, Dan, entrepreneurs really live their businesses. I mean, they've put everything of themselves, and in many cases, all their financial resources, and and sacrificed family time in order to create the business opportunity or the business they have and, and, and love it. So are we talking about just a, a, a natural progression where significant numbers of people are arriving at the time to say goodbye, I'm heading for the golf course or I'm heading for wherever I'm heading? Or, or is this, um, this move related to what you just talked about, a, a lack of confidence in, in, uh, in what business entrepreneurs are facing? I think it's both. Uh, we, you know, the, fi- the major finding of the study uh, that we did of our members showed that over the next 10 years, 72% of the small business owners in the country plan to exit their business. Wow. 72%. And over half, almost oh. half of those plan to leave their business in the next five years. Now, some of this is just demographics. Small business owners often think that they're going to retire at 60, 65, 70, and then end up staying on longer because perhaps they love what they're doing or they need to continue to do what they're doing because that's they don't have a pension like a civil servant does. They rely upon the, the value of their company. But but I think, you know, during the economic crisis uh, just about a decade ago, there were a lot of business owners that had planned to retire, but because their retirement savings had eroded so significantly, uh, the values of their businesses had eroded as well, they decided to stay on longer. But the clock didn't stop ticking, and, and people continue to get older. They can't hang on forever. There's a lot of business owners that are working. I've got loads of members that are active in their business in their 80s. And, and so at some point, these, these folks need to retire. The, the physical demands are, are, are too significant. And as a result of that, they are going to need to pass on their businesses either to another generation within their family or to sell it to somebody, uh, like uh, you know, to a third party. That's $1.5 trillion of assets that may change hands that in the next decade. Huge. But if we don't do that right, that means that there could be a lot fewer jobs for average Canadians. But, you know, there's only so much of this government con- control. And I think to your, to your larger point, we did a, we did a, a separate uh, survey around the small business tax changes that showed that two-thirds of business owners in Canada said that the small business tax changes have caused them to rethink whether they wish to be in business or not. And that's the part government can control. Yeah, and I would think, Dan, those numbers and that fact, what you just said, would also impact on people who might be thinking of buying those businesses that those entrepreneurs are leaving or selling or thinking of selling. If it's a family member, you hand it over. But there's still probably going to be some transactional activity taking place. If the if the climate isn't positive, you know, do I want to do it? Do I not? That's a, got it. That's and Roy, serious. You know, uh, well, I've been doing this for 25 years at CFIB. Yeah, uh, in a variety of roles. Right. When I when I started 25 years ago, the biggest question with respect to tra- succession for on the part of our members, the ones that I was speaking to when I was growing up in my career in Winnipeg, 
mm-hmm. was which of my three kids do I want to pass on the business to? You know, I've got three terrific children or two terrific children, and I have to pick which one uh, is going to, you know, inherit the keys to the business or some sort of share thereof. Today, what I'm hearing more often from business owners is I don't want my kids to take over my business because I don't want to have them go through the same hell that I've had to go through in dealing with all the demands of government. And how terrible is that, that entrepreneurs don't want their kids in some situations to be entrepreneurs because they don't want to have them go through the same uh, challenges that they've had to face with respect to the role of government in their business. That's mind-numbing. And it's terribly concerning because, as you said, I mean, I hadn't heard the number before, but $1.5 trillion represents a significant part of our economy and represents a whole lot of national employment. Dan, thank you for the time. Always great talking to you. Anytime, Roy. Dan Kelly, President CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Uh, we spoke uh, yesterday with uh, reporter Jérôme Godefroy, who joined us from Paris, and he's back with us on the program today from the French capital, and it's 10.30 at night there. So, Jérôme, merci, and uh, thank you thank you for joining us. You're welcome, Roy. So how is today, let's talk about Paris, when the chief of police says the level of violence is unacceptable and unprecedented, what's it been like in Paris today? Well, today the, the city was very quiet. I walked, uh, you know, in the area which was uh, the center of, of all the problems yesterday around the Arc de Triomphe, the Champs-Élysées, these places. And the damages are, are huge, you know, uh, burned cars, uh, the shops uh, broken, uh, fire everywhere, and uh, the damage is extensive in a, in, in a very limited area. You know, it's, it's not it's not the entire city. Uh, if you if you watch it on TV, you you think it's everywhere. No, it's it's one area, but it's it, it has been really bad. And, and of course, the police is right to say that it was very unusual, uh, probably an unprecedented. Uh, we have had um, several crises in France. Uh, you know, May 68, of course, but May 68 was not that level. Uh, during the Algerian war in the 50s, also, there were, there were riots and, and troubles. But this time, it's, it's a mixture uh, of, 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 uh, of anger, of, of uh, uh, you know, uh, middle, middle class uh, people from, from, uh, from the, the provinces, also uh, leftist, uh, extreme right uh, people, and also new thing yesterday in the evening late in the evening people coming from the the poor suburbs of paris uh, mainly from immigration background they came very young people and they came to the city to loot to 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 to, to steal stuff in shops uh, you know uh, phones and, and clothes and stuff like that this is an, a new element and everything is mixed and it's impossible to control that because there is no leader uh, there is no common uh, goal in in these protests, and so it, it's very confusing. And these are people who are drawn together by by uh, social networks, right? Yes, uh, Facebook. Uh, mainly yeah. Facebook is, is is playing a major role. It, it, it's it's the way of communication for all these people. You know, some 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 leaders, uh, if you come if you can call them leaders because they're not really, but prominent figures. Uh, they have two hundred fifty thousand. Uh, followers on Facebook, or uh, these are large groups. Uh, if they say something, and mo- most of the time it's fake news, uh, people believe it, you know. And, and now the, the the 
the, the, the news of the day, the only news, political news, is that the prime minister is going to have meetings this week with political leaders and some representative of, of these uh, uh, yellow jacket people. Uh, but who are these representatives? We don't know. They are not recognized. There is no election. Uh, everybody pretends to be a representative. So it's, it's, it's a total mess. So would it be fair to say or unfair to say that uh, President Macron has lost control of the situation? Uh, no, not yet, because the, the, the country is still, uh, you know, working or running. People tomorrow morning will go to work. Uh, the, the trains are, 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 are on time and, and you know, uh, uh, there is gas in the stations, and so no, it, it, it's it's not it's not turmoil like May '68, but but uh, politically it's it's a nightmare. It, it, it there's, it's a dead end. There is no political situation. The, the, the opposition leaders are asking for uh, you know dissolution of the of the parliament, uh, new elections, uh, but what for? And, and you know the, the the president and this parliament have been elected 18 months ago only. You know it's, they are very new. They are very recent. So. We, we, we it's, I, I've never, I've no idea. You know, it, it, the, the situation is very volatile, volatile, and and, and also uh, they are now uh, claiming, they are now uh, asking for people to do the same thing next Saturday, the same thing in Paris in the same area with the same kind of police, and the police was not able to control the situation uh, yesterday. Okay, so now if we go back to the reported reason for all of this. Is supposedly the, or it's reported to be the policies of President Macron, which have been brought austerity to to people, plus the increase, significant increase, in the price of fuel for for vehicles. Is that yeah. really what it's about? Is that the no, genesis of no, it? No, no. It, this is the the, the, the sparkling, the the, the the little thing which started everything. But 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 uh, the the situation is uh, about. Uh, uh, half of the country, which has been uh, not considered, uh, no, not looked for, uh, for for 30, 40 years, you know, people who are living in small towns, in out of big, big uh, cities, uh, in, in rural areas, villages, uh, so uh, people who have to use their car to, to go to work. And, and if the gas is more expensive, it's, it's a real problem. I, I live in Paris. I have no problem. I have no car. And I, I don't have a, to use a car, but if you're living in a, in, a, in a village or a small town in the middle of, of the southwest of France, you need a car. You need two cars because your wife is also working. So it's, and, and so it's not that increase, which is the main cause. It's the entire situation. Uh, and and it's, uh, these people feel they have been forgotten for, for 20, 30 years. Okay. That's the main problem. Yeah, is it, uh, look, are people in 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 Europe, generally, in a number of countries at least, is there restlessness in Europe that 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 is not necessarily new, but is, well, is there restlessness? No. Is there restlessness in 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 Europe? Uh, there is no. It, it doesn't work like this. This situation is very French, actually. Okay. I would say, because we, we 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 do that all the time. You know, we have we have done that. Uh, I mean, not me, but the people of France have have protested, and every time the, the the power, the government, the president, I say, okay, okay, I withdraw that. I if you don't like it, forget it. We we don't do it. It has it has happened almost every three or four years. You know, 
And so now we wonder if Macron is going to withdraw this, this uh, ex, ex, um, tax, uh, tax raise on, on, on gas or not, you know. And, uh, but it doesn't seem to, 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 to do that. He, yeah, but he can't, he can't he, General, he can't go on forever, right? It's been three weekends I, in a I, row. I, if there's another one, then what? Yes, it's, 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 I don't know. I've, I have no idea, and it seems that nobody in this country knows where this thing, this thing is going. Yeah, and as you said, who, who's he going to meet with? He's going to meet with the political leaders of the party. Yeah, but, uh, but, the, but, but as you the, said, you know, the, the, the demonstrators, who leads them, as you said? Yes, who and, represents and, them? And, and the demonstrators, they don't care at all about these political leaders, you know? These political leaders are, are, are not recognized. Uh, no, uh, uh, so so it's 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 uh, it's uh, there is no dialogue possible, I think. So, uh, so so what's going to happen with the prime minister this week? It's just it's it's uh, it's communication. It yeah. doesn't. It, it won't work. It cannot work. If you were advising the president, what would you tell him? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, one thing I would advise him to. Say speak like you know you can say a lot of things about donald trump but when donald trump speaks you understand him immediately you know right you need 300 words uh, and and but macron is speaking in 10,000 words you know yeah so it's too complicated he, every time he speaks i follow i understand but i think that 90 percent of the population they, they don't they don't get it it's too sophisticated yeah, this no. guy is too clever. Yeah. You, know. <laughs> you know, I've had I've had I've had politicians in the studio with me, and they've yeah. they've used ten thousand dollar words, right? And I've said to them, yeah. Yeah. use ten dollar words because yeah, exactly. that's what I understand, and that's what most people understand. If you use ten thousand dollar words, people are going to think you're talking down to them. Yes, exactly. And, and Macron, there is a, a, an element of hate now. You know, this young president who was, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the new uh, marvelous thing happening like this. And now, 18 months after, he's hated. You know, it's, it's you know, people are asking for him to leave power now. Could and, that it, uh, could that happen? Yeah. Hmm. Um, no, I don't think so. No, not, not at this point. But if, I, no, no, I, I don't know. But uh um, you know, we, we have, been, you know, we, we have an history where we, we killed the uh, kings. Uh, <laughs> the decapitation was, uh, and the guillotine was, was uh, something, uh, you know, working at the, at the time. No, it's, it's, it's sometimes French, French people are, are very brutal, you know, and um, we, lo- we love, we love to, to scream and to protest. That, that's, that's one fact. So it's, um, it's, you know, you can call me. Anytime you want, and, and in the, the coming days, I don't know if I, I'll be able to give you one idea of what's going to happen well, next in this country. I appreciate so much you, you speaking with us and staying up on Sunday night to talk to me. Merci, mon ami. Au revoir, bonne soirée. Bonne soirée. There's uh, Jerome Godfroy joining us from from Paris. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.